0: You're making me laugh because I'm suddenly thinking
1: you're thinking of if, the face melting scene.
0: Well, I'm thinking of the face melting scene, and I'm thinking, what if instead of doing the face melting, I mean, isn't it, isn't the Old Testament? Doesn't it say that they got hemorrhoids?
1: Um, I was going to to to, to soften that. I said <laughs> the tumors. Philistines. Yeah, the you, Philistines. You, they got tumors.
0: Okay, they got tumors. But I was just thinking. I didn't if, say where. I was thinking, I what if it they it. had? Uh, what if they had used that? You know, in the movie instead of um.
1: No, I wouldn't have been visually appropriate. I don't think. Well,
0: I mean, all of a sudden the guys are just like. Uh, uh,
1: Yeah, very uncomfortable either way. Welcome to another stately and genteel episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley, and we've been going through various aspects of various things that we wrestled with on our way into the Catholic Church. Ken and I both are uh, employees of the Coming Home Network. If you are interested at all in the Catholic faith on any level, and you're like us, you came from a place that had zero experience of the Catholic faith, we would love to hear from you. Come visit us at chnetwork.org. Ken, good to talk to you again, buddy. Good to see you. Sola Fide has been the thing we've zeroed in on for the past, uh, it's over a month at this point. So what are we talking about today?
0: We're going to be doing some recap today and really getting clarity on where we're at because we're going to be moving next week into a new zone. Um, We're still going to be talking about justification, but a new area of it, okay? So let me kind of summarize. When we launched this show about 22 episodes ago now, Matt, believe it or not, what I wanted to do... Was deal right away with the two key issues of the Protestant Reformation, that being sola scriptura, referred to as the formal principle of the Reformation, and sola fide, the material principle of the Reformation. That is the key doctrinal issue that Luther, Calvin, and the other reformers had um, had in dispute with the Catholic teaching at the time. Okay, over the course of about 14 episodes, then. You and I shared something of the reasons that we had for abandoning Bible-only Christianity and becoming Catholic. And now for five weeks, this is the sixth week actually, um, I've been telling the story of how I came um, over the course really of a number of years to abandon the classic Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone and to embrace what many Protestants believe to be a damning system of works righteousness. That is the Catholic doctrine of salvation. So, so far, we've been talking primarily about faith and obedience, and that's why I said I wanted to recap. Uh, We've been talking about faith and obedience and how the two relate to one another in Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New. And beginning next week, I want to move forward to focus on the question, but what is justification? What do we mean when we use the word justification? What does it mean to be justified? What happens when we are justified? But first, I wanted to review the steps that we've covered so far so that we'll have clarity going forward, okay?
1: Sure. And to get uh, just back a little bit before we jump into those, uh, again, the Catholic view of justification, salvation, that whole question is being put in this series kind of against the Reformed Lutheran Calvinist view. What Mm -hmm. I found as a person in the Wesleyan Holiness Movement is that and I found this out later on that the arguments I kept on using as a Wesleyan Arminian against the Lutheran Calvin version of justification later on I would realize these sound kind of Catholic. So this is uh, definitely more something that you wrestled with than what I wrestled with. But yeah, I find it yeah. interesting because you really kind of have to understand what was at stake in 1517.
0: Yes. And, it, you know, it is true. Um, although I will say this that. Um, The Reformed Doctrine of Justification, which is where I came from and what I'm talking about, it happens to be the view of justification that is held here in America by the great majority of of non-denominational Christians. Even if they're not Reformed
1: in their lineage. Yeah, Yeah,
0: right. Okay. Well, as an evangelical Christian then, um, with a decidedly Reformed Calvinistic bent, what I had been taught, what I believed, Matt— was that we are justified by faith alone. That's the phrase you hear again and again, meaning, though, that at the moment we reach out to Christ in faith, all all our sins, past, present, and future, are credited to Christ's account. This This is the doctrine of the Atonement, which we're gonna have to come back to later. And all of his righteousness is credited to our account. That's the doctrine of justification. Our justification at that moment is conceived of as being complete, That is Christ's righteousness credited, imputed to me by faith alone. From that instant, God sees us as righteous in Christ, and no sin that we could ever commit after that can alter that status. Okay, nothing can change that because we've been we've been justified by the legally imputed or credited righteousness of Christ, not by anything that we do. Now, as for obedience, as for good works and so forth, this is something that will follow naturally, and I want to make this point because a lot of Catholics don't understand that Protestants believe this, okay? Many just think that what they believe is justified by faith, I can do anything I want. No. Obedience, good works, love for Christ, obedience to Christ, this was conceived as something that would follow naturally in my life as someone who possessed true faith and who had then been regenerated by the, the grace of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit, okay? A tree that has been made good, in other words, by the grace of God, is naturally going to produce good fruit. But, and here's the important point, this has nothing to do with our justification, as I was taught. Nothing. This falls under the doctrine of sanctification, a very different doctrine, where God takes those who have been justified by faith alone, and he begins to remold them into his own image, by his grace, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, so then, for clarity, obedience to Christ, love for Christ, these will follow naturally in the life of the believer. That's what I believed. But never, ever are they to be viewed as requirements or conditions for receiving the promised inheritance. After all, and we've gone over this a, a number of times as well, if that were the case, Matt, think of all the evils that would follow. Then eternal life would be something that we had earned, quote unquote. It would be something that we could rightfully boast in. In that case, salvation would not be the free gift of God. It, it wouldn't be. And God would not get all the glory for the great work of redemption. Instead, we would be knee deep in a damning system of legalism of works righteousness. Okay, is that clear? Because
1: God's really only got 100 glory points, and if you do anything, then you reduce it <laughs> down to 99 glory points. Yeah. Right. I mean that's that's kind of how it sounds to, to me as a as someone from a Wesleyan tradition. And again, you know, slight differences here in, in how this would go. We would say that yes, there are things you can do to to I don't know if we could say that you would earn your salvation, but you could certainly forfeit it through not producing fruit and be cut off yes. like one of the vines. So.
0: Yeah, and when we turn around to to teach the Catholic view of justification we're going to talk about all these um, fine points um, at, at that time. So far, what I've been doing, though, really, is just walking through the steps. That is what actually happened in my life that began to break me away from this, uh, from the Protestant mindset and move me in the direction of Catholicism. Okay, so how did things begin? And where, where did the change begin? Um, step one, and I, I've tried to clarify this in five steps. Step one was that I came to see that in the Old Testament stories of men and women and their relationships with God, obedience was always a condition for receiving his blessing. And an illustration of this, I believe, could be found on literally virtually every single page of the Old Testament. And again, just quickly, you know, Noah had to trust God and he had to what? Build a boat in order to be delivered through the flood, in order to be saved. Abraham had to trust God and he had to what? He had to leave his kindred, his family, Ur of the Chaldees and follow. Moses and the Israelites, they had to trust God and walk out of Egypt, cross the burning desert, following the pillar of cloud and fire and all that. Naaman had to trust God and dip himself in the Jordan. It just goes on and on and on. The pattern that was clear to me, that became clear to me, and that can be seen really throughout the Old Testament, the pattern is from God, trust me, that's faith, and do what I ask you to do, obedience, and I will bless you. That's the pattern. And, as and far as I could see, God even
1: says, I will." I did this for you, I blessed you because you obeyed. I mean, that's even yeah, a pattern that you see repeatedly in yeah. the Old Testament.
0: Obedience is always presented in the Old Testament, I could see, as a condition for receiving God's promised blessings. Just listen to a few passages. Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. Genesis 17, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you. Genesis 22, I myself, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven because you have obeyed my voice. Genesis 26, speaking to Isaac, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Obedience is everywhere presented as a condition throughout the Old Testament, okay?
1: If you look back at Genesis 17, it doesn't say the backwards version of this. It doesn't say, uh, when God is speaking to Abraham, uh, I am God Almighty, I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will multiply exceedingly. And then you will walk before me and be blameless. Right. (laughs) You know, it's always the opposite. It's always, do these things that I have asked you to do, and good things will come out of
0: it. Okay, so yeah, simple. Step one w- was simply my coming to see that obedience throughout the Old Testament was presented as a condition. And then step two is this, never was obedience as a condition for receiving the promised blessing of God, never was this presented as something bad. And <laughs> this someone might say, well, what are you talking about? Well, from within the Reformed tradition, I had heard it said a thousand times. And in a thousand different ways, I'd heard it said, the moment that obedience is conceived as a requirement, the moment we begin to conceive of obedience as a condition for receiving God's promised blessings, at that moment, we have transformed the gospel of God's grace into a damning system of works righteousness. It's pure legalism. And so the question that was beginning to hit me was, so why doesn't this seem to be an issue in the Old Testament? Why aren't Noah and Abraham and Moses and the rest of those presented? Why why aren't they presented as those who earned God's blessing through their works and now have something in which to boast for all eternity? Why aren't these Old Testament saints presented as illustrations of how God doesn't want us to relate to him? That is in, in a legalistic fashion.
1: Right, and as a matter of fact, uh, you know there are times in which the children of Israel are, are, are held up um, actually, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, as having given bad example. But when they are held up as giving bad example, it's because they were disobedient, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. therefore they did not receive the blessing. Right. right? So whenever there's an Old Testament example that's held up as a bad thing, it's the disobedience that's held up as the example to not follow.
0: That's right. It's because they didn't trust God and follow through in obedience, and therefore were punished in one way or another. But we're going to see the reverse in just a moment, okay? Because I was beginning at this point to you know to scratch my head here i saw throughout the old testament that obedience was presented as a condition step 1 and step 2 this didn't seem to be something bad this was presented as something just great something fine which leads to step 3 i came to see that this pattern illustrated in the lives of the old testament saints faith and obedience leading to god's blessing i came to see that this pattern carried right on through into the New Testament as well. And again, without there being a hint of concern that somehow now we had entered into legalism. In the Gospels, Jesus says, believe in me. Definitely, more than once. But he also says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. He who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a man who built his house upon the rock. Everywhere in the Gospels, it's faith and it's obedience. And the same with Paul. In Paul's letters to the churches that he found him, and in his preaching recorded in the book of Acts, yes, Paul says a number of times, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But Paul also says, and seems to have no problem saying, in many different ways, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. He who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life, Let us not grow weary in doing good. In other words, we want to reap the the harvest of eternal life. We need to do good and not grow weary in it. It's faith and it's obedience all the way through.
1: And something I'm seeing as you're reading this is that, uh, and we've talked about it before, the analogy of agriculture here the plant you cannot make the plant grow you can create the conditions and be obedient to the understanding of the life cycle of a plant but God gives the increase you know as saint Paul says, you know one planted another watered but the Holy yeah. Spirit made it grow and and over and over this image that Christ gives us of you know keeping the vines pruned or keeping the amp the 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 lamps full mm-hmm. and all these other things all of this is speaking to a cooperation it's not speaking to a you get the glory because you made the plant rise from the ground. No, you were obedient to a process.
0: And in normal course of life, we totally understand this. You're you're right. The farmer has to plow at the field. The farmer has to throw the seeds into the ground. The farmer has to cover them over, put the fertilizer, has to water, has to tend it and all that. But it's God who causes the growth. And when the corn comes up, you know, the, you know, the, the farmer doesn't say, you know, I have earned corn, you know.
1: I mean, no. and, and, and you played a part, but did yeah. you invent corn? No, you did not. No. You did not invent corn. No.
0: no. And, and And so this is the way it's portrayed. Paul says in that passage that I just read, he said, if you want to reap the harvest of eternal life, then you have to be sowing to the spirit by persevering in doing good and not giving up. Now, a passage that really hit me in this regard was Hebrews chapter 11, Matt, and we've looked at this as well. Here, the inspired author of the letter to the Hebrews, he speaks of Noah and Abraham and Moses and a great number of other Old Testament saints who, through faith and perseverance in obedience, receive the promises from God, and he presents them to his New Testament readers, his, his Christian readers, as examples for them to imitate. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying to these New Testament Christians, I want you to take these Old Testament men and women as models for how you should live your lives so that you too may persevere in faith and obedience and receive what God has promised.
1: As a matter of fact, anytime St. Paul would have been referring to the scriptures, he would have been referring to the Old Testament. Yes. Because until, you know, hundreds of years later, these were not all compiled in a single book that we now know as the New Testament. St. Paul is steering people, if he's steering them to the scriptures at all, that's where he's steering them, is to these Old Testament models of faith.
0: Yeah, and the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, he describes this, you know, he, he just lists, you know, all of these saints in the Old Testament. Again, it's faith and obedience. He holds them forth as models for us. And you move into chapter 12, and isn't that what he says? He says, Since we have this great cloud of witnesses now, let us run the race that is set before us. And then verse 14 comes and he says, and striving after holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. This is uh, what it teaches. So, okay, it it seemed to me at this point, Matt, it was was beginning to seem to me that there was something fundamentally wrong with the way that I had been taught to think about faith and obedience. And I can say it like this. If the Lord was able to require faith and obedience of all these saints listed in Hebrews 11, if he was able to re- to require faith and obedience of them in order to get the blessing, and this was not somehow contrary to grace, without their example becoming something that we want to run away from you know, and have nothing to do with, then the question was at least raised in my mind, why would requiring the same of us be necessarily contrary to grace?
1: It wouldn't I, be. And as we talked, um, I think a couple of episodes ago there's not really a whole lot of difference between what John the Baptist is saying at the River Jordan as he baptizes and what the Old Testament prophets are saying every time, which is, don't think that you are some hot shots because you were magically born into this covenant situation. I want your hearts. You know, I want you yes. to trust me and obey me. Yeah. That's pretty clear throughout the pages of scripture from Adam all the way to Jesus.
0: Yes, I I guess I could say it like this: that I was beginning to see a very strong continuity in Scripture when it came to faith and obedience leading to God's blessing, and not some kind of major contrast. But yes, by you mentioning John the Baptist, you you've walked directly into step four in this in this recap because step four was this: I came to see that in the preaching of Isaiah and Jeremiah to the Israelites of their time, the Old Testament prophets. And in the preaching of John the Baptist and even our Lord Jesus to the Jews of their time, faith in God and obedience to God were never set in opposition to one another. There's always this smooth continuity. Instead, faith and obedience together were always set in opposition to a prideful presumption, if you will, that because I am an Israelite, you know, because I am a Jew, I've got it made with God. The prophets never contrasted faith with obedience. The contrast that the prophets continually drew was between those who loved God and walked in his ways, that is, those who had faith and obedience, like Noah and Abraham, Moses, and the rest. The the, the contrast they drew continually was between those who loved God and walked in his ways, and those who said to themselves and to others, because i am a descendant of abraham because i bear the covenant sign of circumcision in my flesh because i am holier than thou i have it made in the shade essentially with god and you mentioned john the baptist i i think this is illustrated so powerfully in the response that john made to the pharisees and the sadducees that came to him at the jordan river to be baptized matthew tells us they came to be baptized but john knew their hearts And so he responds, (laughs) can you imagine someone coming to be baptized, and the priest looks at him and says, you brood of vipers. Anyway, John knew their hearts, And and this is what John said to him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham." So notice what John doesn't say to these Pharisees and Sadducees. John doesn't draw a contrast between faith and obedience. John doesn't say to them, hey, you guys, don't presume to say to yourselves, We have the faith and obedience that Noah and Abraham and Moses and all the saints of Hebrews chapter 11 had. God is going to bless us because we love the Lord our God with all our heart and we walk in his ways. Don't presume to say that. I mean, John doesn't say anything like that. Instead, what John says to them is, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. We are the right people. We are of the right, the correct race. Um, In other words then, the problem was not that these men loved God and kept his commandments like Noah and Abraham and Moses and believed that God would bless them as he promised he would. That's not the problem. The problem was that they did not love God and keep his commandments, but instead relied on their status as the chosen race. Okay? Because of this, in fact, John says they need to repent and become obedient. Back to your illustration, you know, where you said that whenever the Old Testament people are given as an as a negative illustration, it's because they didn't obey.
1: They're stiff-necked.
0: Yeah. Right? so Stiff-necked
1: so, so, and, and unable to be pulled like an oxen, right?
0: Yeah. And Jesus said the same thing, Matthew 23, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. It's the same kind of thing. John is not saying to these people, you guys love the Lord your God with all your heart and you guys are walking in all of his ways, but you need to understand that's not what God cares about.
1: Well, I'm so glad you brought up Matthew 23 because it's—I'm just looking at verse 23 of that chapter Mm -hmm. right here because it so clearly sets out the difference between uh, what Jesus is saying about, rather, faith and obedience versus, you know, I just jumped through all the hoops, Um, where he says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law—justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then this stunner at the end— you should have practiced the latter without neglecting mm-hmm. the former, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. meaning that it was all supposed to be part of this package. Like The whole reason you're doing the dill, mint, and cumin thing is because it's supposed to reinforce justice, mercy, and faithfulness, but all it's doing is giving you boxes to check because of the way that your attitude is toward these tithes.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and it, there are a lot of different words that we can use to describe this thing that the the Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the prophets, and then G- John the Baptist and Jesus are against. But it, it certainly isn't obedience. I mean, it's not like they're saying faith alone is the good thing, and the bad thing or the contrary would be thinking that God's going to bless you because you love the Lord your God with all your heart and and are obedient to Him. It, it's not that at all. It, it's something about. It's something along the lines of a prideful presumption that we are the ones that received the covenant from God. We received the law on Mount Sinai. We keep the Sabbath. We keep ourselves unstained from the evil Gentiles all around us. We tithe mint, dill, and cumin. We make sure to wash our hands and wash the pots and the cups and the, and the copper tins and everything. But they did not love God and and trust. They did not trust in him, and they were not obedient to him. And so, what they were being called to was obedience. It well, wasn't I'll have faith you
1: know? Ken, I did not mean to put this up. I've been putting up a different album every week, and I put up the soundtrack to Raiders of the Lost Ark behind me today. And what mm-hmm. happens in that movie? Except this Ark of the Covenant, which is meant to be a sign of God's favor, some guy who cares nothing for God but only wants the power starts to try and use and manipulate the Ark to create power from himself. Yeah, and what yeah. happens? Oh. His face melts off right? But the same thing happened in the scriptures. When the Philistines steal the ark, they all get covered in tumors, right? You take the gift of God, something that was created as a sign of his favor, but you try Mm -hmm. and manipulate it for your own favor and ends. And what do you have? You got nothing but your own ego, and that always goes badly.
0: (laughs) You're making me laugh because I'm suddenly thinking— You're thinking of the
1: face-melting scene.
0: Well, I'm thinking of the face-melting scene, and I'm thinking, what if instead of doing the face-melting—I mean, isn't isn't the Old Testament—doesn't it say that they got hemorrhoids
1: um, I was going to, to 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 soften that. I said <laughs> the tumors.
0: Philistines.
1: The Philistines. They got tumors.
0: Okay, they got tumors. But I was just thinking- I didn't say where. I was thinking, I what if where. they had? Uh, what if they had used that? You know, in the movie instead of um.
1: No, I wouldn't have been visually appropriate. I don't think. Well, I mean, all of a sudden, the guys are just like, ah, ah. yeah, very uncomfortable either way.
0: And uh, yeah, you know, I haven't thought of it either. Raiders of the Lost Ark is kind of an image of the same thing. So. It's not that they are against obedience and for faith. Uh, That's the point I'm trying to make, is that faith and obedience are never contrasted in the prophets, nor in John the Baptist, nor in Jesus. What is contrasted is faith and obedience on the one side, to love the Lord your God and do what he says, and on the other side, a prideful presumption that I am the right person, I'm the right kind of person because of my birth, because I am a son of Abraham, and so forth. Okay, which leads to step five which is critical and that we covered in depth last week, I came to believe that this is the contrast Paul has in his mind when he speaks of how we are saved by grace through faith and, quote, not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast, unquote. Now, I had understood for years, I had understood for a long time, many years, that in Paul's ministry, He was dealing with certain Jewish believers, mainly from the Pharisees before, who were insisting that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they needed to receive circumcision, they needed to uh, begin to keep the Sabbath and the other festivals, adhere to the Mosaic dietary laws, the purification rituals and whatnot, essentially that they needed to become Jews. Remember, that's what Acts 15 was all about, the Council of Jerusalem. The first council of Christian history met to deal with that issue. Okay, I had understood for years, Matt, that this was the situation in which Paul was doing much of his writing and his ministry, but I hadn't thought to read Paul's statements about works and works of the law in the light of this situation. Instead, I read Paul as Luther read Paul, as Calvin read Paul, as Reformed theologians ever since had been reading him as though he were contrasting faith with obedience in these passages and teaching that we are justified by faith in Christ apart from obedience to Christ. The justification was by faith alone. But then reading, and I have to say primarily Protestant New Testament scholars like N.T. Wright, James Dunn, there are a bunch of others. It was reading New Testament scholars that I began to notice something. I began to notice that in the books in which Paul makes these very strong statements against works, quote unquote, and works of the law, quote unquote. In the letters in which Paul makes his strongest statements against works and works of the law, that is his letters to the Galatians, to the Romans, to the Philippians, he's always talking about things that related specifically to being Jewish. He's always mentioning the circumcision party that we talked about last week, the party that you were Hoping you're never you know, invited bring the,
1: to. Bring the cake. He's always talking about the works of the flesh or yes. the mutilators of the flesh. Yeah, he's those talking who always about him. a very specific kind of fleshly alteration.
0: Yes. He's always talking about those who trust in the flesh when he refers, refers to them, those who are trying to force Gentiles to be circumcised. He's, he calls them the dogs, the evil workers. He, he contrasts and says, we are the true circumcision. Okay. Paul is always working to convince his Gentile readers to not allow themselves to be put under the Mosaic law, and he's always working to convince Jews, his Jewish readers, that their Jewishness isn't what counts with God. Just, just, just listen. Romans 2.17, but if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in your relation with God, Romans 2.28 for he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. Philippians 3, verses 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs. He's writing to Gentile converts here. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in in the flesh. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. And 1 Corinthians 7, 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God.
1: You know, can I emphasize that question of the works of the flesh or um, all, the, all the fleshly things that Paul brings up, specific in Galatians and Romans and Corinthians, because as someone who did not understand that all this was being spoken through the context of the reforms of the First Council of Jerusalem, you and I in today's parlance would say, well, the world, the flesh, and the devil are ruining everything.
0: Yeah. By yeah. flesh, we just mean yeah.
1: broadly any of our passions and desires that cause us to uh, you know, think that our own will is better than God's will. Uh, anything that we would pursue out of uh, disoriented desire, whereas when Paul's mm-hmm. talking about flesh and the mutilators of the flesh and boasting in the flesh, it's all about circumcision. It's yeah. all about circumcision.
0: Yeah, and and it should it it should make someone ask the question if what Paul is teaching in all these letters is that we are justified by faith alone, apart from obedience to Christ, apart from obedience of any kind, apart from the need to do anything. Why does he feel the need so constantly to be saying it's not about circumcision? It's not about, you know, uh, becoming a Jew and putting yourself under the Mosaic law. It's not. A, why, why, why is he so fixated on talking so much about these issues? And in fact, I, I mentioned last week that the classic passage, Romans 3.28, where Paul says a man is justified by faith and not by works, okay, apart from works. Paul for some reason immediately after that says or is God the god of Jews only you know indicating that by works by works of the law he's got in his mind stuff that has to do with being Jews but with being Jewish so this is what happened though i began to believe that at the heart of the reformation understanding of faith and obedience and what paul was teaching when he says a man is justified by faith in christ and not by works of the law I began to believe that a critical mistake had been made. The Reformers, and here it is, I want to state it so, as clearly as I can. The Reformers had read Paul, I believe, through the lens of what Luther was struggling with and not through the lens of what Paul was struggling with. Okay? Let me say it again. I think the Reformers made the mistake of reading Paul through the lens of what Luther was struggling with rather than through the lens of what Paul was struggling with. Luther was struggling with his inability to love God and keep his commandments to be obedient to love God and be obedient to him and reading Paul in the light of his of this struggle what Luther heard Paul saying was don't worry only believe justification is by faith alone apart from the need to love God and keep his commandments that's what Luther heard well this may have been Luther's struggle, but the point is, I was coming to see this wasn't Paul's struggle, and I don't believe this is what Paul was saying. I don't think this is what Paul was talking about at all when he says that we are justified by faith in Christ apart from works of the law.
1: What Paul was saying was the same thing, essentially, that Jesus was saying when he said in Matthew twenty three twenty three, "Woe to you!" You're you're fixating on mint and dill and cumin when you ought to be fixating. On faithfulness and justice and mercy. And again, if those things, you know, of tithing dill, mint, and cumin are, are ways that you are conforming the first fruits of your labors to God, then by all means go for it. But if you're just doing it to do it, you're yeah. you're making a mockery of it.
0: Yeah, or if you're trusting that those are the things. Yeah.
1: It's like it doesn't matter what I do, I gave my dill and mint and cumin, right? It smells great, but yeah. It stinks before
0: God. Yeah. And and in, in that sense, I really came to believe that what Paul was saying in these passages was essentially the same thing that Isaiah was saying in Isaiah chapter one, when he says, "You rulers of Sodom, you know, you people of Gomorrah, I can't stand your incense anymore. Quit bringing your sacrifices into the temple. Rather, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, do what is right." The same thing that Jeremiah was saying when he said, "You know, I, I'm I'm going to have to circumcise the hearts of those of you that are circumcised." And yet uncircumcised. Same thing John was saying when he said, quit presuming to say we have Abraham for our father. Same thing Jesus was saying in Matthew 23. Yeah, the same thing. In other words, there's a continuity. But now the objection comes, and the objection comes strongly stated from the reformed side. Here it is. Matt, Ken, how can faith and how can faith and obedience function as conditions for our being justified before God? When justification is something that takes place and is completed the instant we first believe. Remember, the moment one reaches out to Christ in faith, his perfect righteousness is legally imputed to the one who believes and he is declared just. <laughs> okay? So you got a problem, Ken, and you got a problem, Matt, because how in the world can obedience, which would come after this moment, just logically, right? come temporally afterward. How can obedience, which comes after this moment, be a condition for this moment? Justification simply has to be by faith alone.
1: And this is where the Armenian and me would say, "Well, how do you know that the courtroom is the best way to understand this?" <laughs> right? Um, yeah, and because- I fall
0: down before your Armenian, uh, you know, hide, and I say, "Yeah, you know, you you made a good point there. You're making well, a good point there."
1: But but again, you know, this is not just a debate between. Protestantism and Catholicism, it's also mm-hmm. a debate between a certain, you know, school of Protestant thought and other schools of Protestant thought. And in, in in your case, being Baptist and Reformed, this is the stuff that you double down, you triple, you quintuple down on this question of justification and faith alone, whereas it would not have been a characteristic. I mean, some of the aspects of faith alone, we just sort of absorbed because we were American Christians, but not to the extent that the Reformed camps do.
0: Yeah, so. and, and that's why I will give a a little teaser by by stating what what step six is, because with this, we're coming to step six, which we will hit next week and in, in our next episode. But step six was this then. I learned that the Reformation view of justification as the legal imputation of Christ's righteousness. Again, all courtroom language. All the courtroom language is something that had never been taught, never even been conceived in the first 1,500 years of Christian history.
1: And yet it's presented in so many forms of American Christianity as you stand before the judge in the courtroom. What yeah. are you going to say to get into heaven? So it's very important that we uh, spend a whole episode on step six, I think, because there's a lot in there, and a lot of people who probably have raised objections even as we've been talking. If so, please leave them in the comments. Be polite to one another. Uh, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please Subscribe. Uh, to the Coming Home Network YouTube channel. Go back and watch all, was it, 21 other episodes of On the Journey to figure out you know, how we built to this point, if you like. And if you have any questions about the Catholic faith or are looking for support uh, of any kind as you're exploring it, please let us know. Hit us with a note at chnetwork.org. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, always a pleasure. We'll talk to you next week.
0: Yep, it's good to see you again, Matt. See you next week.